In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. Okay, today we are talking with uh, Dr. Aditi Malhotra, and I really hope that I said that correctly. Um, She is the editor-in-chief at the Canadian uh, Army Journal, uh, which is the, uh, I'll let her talk about it, but it's the the professional military journal for the Canadian Army. But uh, with that, Aditi, I just wanted to thank you for your time. I know we've spent a probably too much time chatting beforehand. So I hope I'm not taking up too much of your Sunday, but thank you for coming on and uh, uh, talking with me today. Thank you so much, Amos. It's such a pleasure and delight to be here. So thank you for this opportunity. All right. So I know that uh, there's, uh, you're the editor in chief at the Canadian Army Journal. And I wanted to talk to you about a couple things as it relates to that. I'd like to talk to you about the journal itself. I'd also like to talk to you about what is an editor-in-chief and what are some of the challenges uh, that you run to? And then we'll talk about a couple of other things. But on the, I guess my first, uh, my first question for you is, what is the Canadian Army Journal? And within that question, there's a couple of baked-in questions I have as well. So who is your target audience? Are you looking at policymakers? Are you looking at senior military leaders? Are you looking at the, the Canadian Army in general? Are you looking across uh, you know, the, the, the Western military enterprise, if you will, and trying mm-hmm. to help influence, uh, you know, the U.S. and other friends. Uh, and then also with that, and I'm probably loading you with too many sub-questions here, but <laughs> what is the uh, what are your intended outcomes with the journal? What's the journal trying to achieve? And then um, I guess a process question is, what is the production schedule for the journal? Over to you. 
Okay, thank you. Like, a lot of, lot of questions here. <laughs> no, but really good questions. So first off, I'll just begin with like a brief description of what the Canadian Army Journal is. So the Canadian Army Journal, which we also call as the CAG, the C-A-G, mm-hmm. is the official publication of the Canadian Army. And it was first established in 1947. So it's really not like just your typical publication. I see it as Canadian Army's way of diving deep into the world of ideas and issues that surround land warfare, the contemporary defense and security issues. So uh, think of CAG as a go-to source for professional thought and informed debate on anything related to land warfare per se. And uh, the CAG has a role, I would say, in shaping the intellectual landscape of the Canadian Army. But it's not just about the tactics and strategies. Uh, CAG is about creating a culture of deep analytical thinking. And, uh, you know, if we talk about the goal of the CAG, the very goal is to get military professionals of all levels. And that's important, you know, Mm -hmm. to get military professionals at all levels to think critically, share their experiences, identify the right lessons from those experiences, And expand the knowledge base, you know, not just for the army, the military, but also like the world outside. And the cool part is that uh, CAT is not just for the military folks. It's a hub for anyone who's interested in defense and security issues, whether, you know, someone's from the government agency or the civilian world or the academia. Like it's all about your interest in the field and not, you know, about where you actually work. So regardless of that, I see it as a hub for everyone because the very idea of CAG is about fostering intellectual growth and professional military development by bringing in different voices and perspectives. Uh, So it's not only about, you know, having an inclusive outlook, but also having a comprehensive outlook to anything related to security and land warfare. So I would say if you're excited about this very exciting world of land warfare and beyond, CAG is like a must read for you. Yeah, that's uh, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know why anybody wouldn't be excited at this point about land warfare, because it is quite uh, <laughs> quite prevalent uh, in, in armed conflict today. I know you're working on a uh, an edition on urban warfare. I think this is a, a unique opportunity, too, to, to talk about how CAG is not just Canadians writing about Canadian problems, but it's everybody writing about uh real world problems so what's the uh what's the timeline look like for that edition and who all have you who all were you able to get to, to help write with that one Oh, that's like, trust me, I could go on and on about that one. But uh, yeah, so as you said, we're working on two editions that focus on urban warfare. Mm-hmm. You know, needless to say, we be dealing with urban warfare and its re-emergence in the current political and geostrategic scenario. We see it, you know, carrying out in Ukraine. We see it even in the Gaza Strip. So there are a lot of challenges that the militaries are facing. And then there are also like there's a lot of civilian side to it as well. So the idea was to come up with two very focused editions on urban warfare, wherein the first edition looks at the very concepts, the TTPs and, you know, all the conceptual and abstract parts, Mm -hmm. if you will, about urban warfare in general. And the second edition looks very specifically at 
as case studies. Mm. And all these case studies are not just, you know, Western case studies. We have uh, scholars writing from the Philippines. We have scholars from other allied countries, uh, from other partner countries such as India. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, you know, Canadians writing for the Canadian Army Journal. We have you, you know, and I'm really glad that, you know, you're one of our authors in, in interesting in both the editions. So it's, it's really cool to have you there and thank you for your contributions. So mm-hmm. we, we, of course, have a lot of American colleagues writing. We have Australians, British. We're dealing with, you know, how do you war game urban warfare? What are the mm-hmm. challenges and complexities? Uh, we have a take on, you know, how do you mitigate uh, civilian casualties? Because, you know, there's this myth that it's easy to just, you know, evacuate civilians out of the, you know, war conflict zones. And, yeah. But in reality, that hardly happens the same way as we predicted in theory. And that's something that we realized as well. So there's a lot of focus on these aspects as well. So, yes, I think I can say we've got all the urbanistas from all across <laughs> the world. <laughs> and we, we've had the privilege of having a major Jason Giroux, who is like the urban warfare expert and, you know, scholar from Canada, who is the co-author for, you know, sorry, not the co-author, the co-editor for these two editions. Mm. And the insights, you know, that uh, we receive from him are like remarkable. So, yes, like we have anyone and everyone writing for the journal. We have Colonel DiMarco. We have Professor Anthony King, who's writing for us. We have uh, Mr. Stuart Lyle, who's from uh, the UK. We have Captain Colin Papushak and like a lot similar names. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to be excited about, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to these two editions. And I think 2024 is what we are targeting for the, you know, for both of them. Uh, say mid of 24, we're looking mm-hmm. at the release of the first edition, and the uh, almost the end of 2024, we're looking at the release of the second edition. So just consider 2024 as the year of urban warfare for the catch. Yeah, well, that's. Uh, I think that that's uh, apropos considering 2022 and 2023 have been the years of urban warfare uh, mm-hmm. in, re- in reality. So it's good that uh, uh, the literature is catching up on that. And I think it's great that I think personally, uh, Tony King is, is uh, the end all be all when it comes to urban warfare. And I think that his, his work is phenomenal because it, it really does tie. It's not just uh, assumptions, but it's it's data that he uses to tie his assertions about the future of urban warfare, you know, uh, land forces getting smaller, cities getting larger, you know, these are quantifiable things that we can look at and say, it's not just a guess, it's it's reality. And then we have the real world data that's backing that up. I mean, we look at, as you mentioned, Ukraine, you look at what's going on in uh, the Gaza Strip, that it's urban warfare is is everywhere so it's uh i think it's great that you guys are diving in on that the other thing too this you just mentioned the evacuations of civilians being um challenging and not what it seems to be i think that's also there's also an important aspect of that too that um sometimes gets overlooked uh when we talk about urban warfare is the evacuation not only of civilians but also of of military people and so there's Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look back at the Battle of Ilovaisk in 2014, August of 2014 in Ukraine, there was this, uh, you know, negotiated withdrawal of uh, the Ukrainians who had been uh, all but beaten in the city. And then as they were withdrawing, the 
they were supposed to, you know, which are all along two coordinated axes out of the area, and they were attacked, intentionally attacked by the uh, the Russians and their proxy forces, and that was uh, what drove up their their numbers significantly. So I think I bring all that up to say, you know, you, you mentioned the evacuation of civilians. It's also the evacuation of military forces, and these are these are these are things that are buried under the the simplification of of uh, reporting on urban warfare that I think are important things. And I'm sure that a lot of that will get pulled out. So, um, mm-hmm. all right. So with that, I, I, I have like a process type question for you. So what is in your situation and your experience, what is an editor in chief? And then specifically, what are the challenges that you've experienced as an editor uh, trying to put together a, a uh, put together a good journal? Okay, that's actually a pretty interesting question. So uh, I'll start with what I think, you know, from my perspective is the editor-in-chief's job. I, I see the editor as the captain of the ship, mm-hmm. which largely drives, you know, the, the very uh, idea of what the journal is all about. So say for Catch, our goal is to get as many diverse voices that can provide us a comprehensive understanding of uh, any particular issue on land warfare. So for this, what I try to dive into is, you know, looking at what are the sub, who are the subject matter experts, getting to solicit manuscripts and sometimes also, of course, you know, receiving manuscripts, going through them, looking at them from the point of view of what is that really drives the very goal and mission of the journal. Does that, you know, uh, converge with what we're trying to achieve with the you know with each edition coming out so i see you know the editor working on everything from start to finish of course i would not say that it's just the editor working on everything there there's you know remarkable and tremendous support from from the amazing catch team that we have we we recently have had uh, uh, deputy editors who've been helping with the editing because there are so many manuscripts uh, and which is really good because it shows that there's so much interest to publish with the catch and we have designers that that work on you know the the visual aesthetics of the journal we have copy editors uh, translators because catch is an open source bilingual journal Mm. so everything that's published in english is published in french and whatever's published in french is published in english as well so because of that you know we we get great support from different units that specialize in the translation services. So it's it's a complete team. But what the editor does is, of course, get everything together, coordinate between the different departments and make sure that everything that the readers finally read is something that adds to an insightful debate. So sometimes it's not always about putting things in the journal that I would personally agree with, but it's all about sparking debates and discussions on what's crucial, because what we are looking at is a journal for the army of tomorrow. It's like Mm -hmm. an intellectual landscape. So for that, you need anything and everything that helps a military professional or a civilian that reads the journal to have a comprehensive understanding of what contemporary warfare and land warfare is all about. So I would just say this is like a broad overview. And when it comes to some of the challenges, I guess sometimes, you know, it's challenging to get uh, practitioners to write for us. Mm. 
And even though, you know, it's amazing because we get a, most of the people who do write for us are practitioners, but I always feel there's so much more, you know, potential for so many more professionals to write. Because the sad part is not everyone has the time and the bandwidth to put words on paper. But I always feel that this is like a personal mission of mine to get everyone to start writing. It helps you with clarity of thought. It kind of is a kickstarter for strategic analysis and thinking for any army in that sense. So I think one of the biggest challenge from my perspective is to get more and more people writing because sometimes we have the usual suspects who write a lot more than others who may have like a sea world of experience but may not put that insight onto paper. So I see that as one of the challenges. But again, I think that that's an ongoing thing. It's always work in progress. And I feel there's so much potential to get so many more diverse voices on board. Yeah, that's that's uh that actually hit one of the one of the other questions I had for you, which was, "What are you looking for in the authors and why?" But uh, you basically took care of that one, uh, that question with that answer. So, when you look at practitioners, and um, do you see, in addition to the time being available, is there an incentive or disincentive uh, that you've noticed at all with with pr- practitioners, specifically in the Canadian military, or Canadian Army writing? Because uh, sometimes, um, there, you know, like in the U.S., there's been this big push in the past couple months in the U.S. Army uh, in particular to, to incentivize uh, writing in professional journals. And so there's been this, you know, the Harding Project is what it's called, and they're trying to, to push people to write again because it seems like there was uh, writing had been disincentivized or perhaps even punished in some regards Um for years mm-hmm. and I've, I've actually felt a bit of that sting myself uh throughout my career for for publishing things because uh it's gone against it's gone against not necessarily the institution but the ideas that the institution has has been pushing so do you see any of that happening uh, on your side of uh <laughs> of the international border if you will I feel like I think in the recent years, I would say similarly, there has been a lot more push from the senior leadership to, you know, for officers and NCOs to start writing. But uh, I I think one of the biggest challenge, which, you know, I could be wrong on this one, but I feel one of the biggest challenges for military practitioners to write is sometimes, you know, uh, the the lack of confidence on, on writing per se, because what they're mostly used to is writing sit reps and briefing notes Mm. And when it comes to actual scholarly writing and analytical writing, the formats are so different that at times, you know, the the very training that you need to do more scholarly writing is is sometimes lacking. And I feel that is something that the institutions, I I suppose, even in the U.S., but even in Canada are are trying to push, like training for military writing, because... after years of writing lists and writing sit reps, it's not easy to just transition into writing something scholarly or analytical. So I feel that there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, 
lack of self-confidence, mm. but I always feel the only way to start writing good is to just start writing, regardless of what quality comes out. I think that is something which I have seen with myself. Like I, yeah. I've been writing for like decades now. Of course, I'm not writing as much now <laughs> as I used to, but that's something I realized, you know, you always start with a 500 word or a thousand word article and you keep writing and writing and you start realizing that, oh, the quality has improved exponentially over practice. So I, I think the key to, you know, writing is just write, no matter how bad you think your writing is. At the end of the day, the kind of insights that a military practitioner can, you know, offer to the world remains undervalued by the military practitioner, you know, themselves, which is really sad because the kind of experience that they have cannot be replicated even by an intellectual or a scholar or a theorist sitting mm -hmm. in the ivory towers and theorizing warfare. So I always feel it's so important for everyone to realize they have so much value to offer. And which is why I keep urging people just write regardless of, you know, the quality that you think you're writing. So that's, that's an excellent point. Cause uh, I'm, I'm working on a book for Hellgate publishing right now. And, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm at the point now where I'm, I'm late on my deadline. So now I'm just writing regardless of the quality. <laughs> so I'm going to tell my editor to reference uh, you and your comment when she comes back to me and tells me that my, uh, my writing was quite poor because I didn't use good grammar and whatnot. Like, I'm just getting words on the paper. For you sure. Know? At the end of the day. And that's important, right? That's where you yep. start. So just call it your first draft and then tell the editor, you that's just right. wait for the second one. Yeah, we'll have to iterate a few times. I think... Um, <laughs> One of the things that's also important to note, like I, it, just a comment for me on the work that editors in general, as it relates to military uh, journals, have to do is jargon, I think, is, is one of the things that gets in the way of good writing. And so it gets in the way of good writing because jargon is so specific to a, spe like an, a specific organization. And then even within organizations, right, within units different units if we're using that as the differentiating thing here different units have different languages uh, themselves oh, you know yes. and so um you know it's, it's it's people are incentivized to speak in the language of their organization but in many cases okay that's fine but when it comes to writing you need to write in plain English, whether that's Canadian English or American English or British English or whatever the case may be. But you mm -hmm. need to write in common language that isn't laden in jargon because, again, I think that's part of the problem is I've done editing because I've, I've I worked as a, an editor with the Wavel Room for a year and I've done some other editing. I've helped edit a couple uh, art articles for CAJ. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's one of the things that I think gets in the way of people writing well, as I think, like, as you read, or as I'm talking about myself here, as I read some of these articles, I can see where the individual is trying to go, but because they're so stuck on jargon, mm -hmm. not in a negative way, but it's just because of what they've been um, taught how to think and speak in when they, when they just write a string of buzzwords that are just nothing but jargon, it gets in the way of them really, um, explaining the ideas that it uh, that it is that they're trying to get across and so i think that 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 is important to anybody 
um, that's trying to write anything, whether it's, you know, whether you're in the military or not, like if you speak in the jargon of your institution that you're associated with, mm -hmm. you're going to get in the way of, of, of clarity and clarity of understanding. And you're also going to make life really, really hard for an editor who's trying to get your ideas across, um, <laughs> yes. but it has to break oh, yeah. through the, the, the prison of jargon to get them out there. That's true. That's that's actually a very good point, and I'd like to actually build on that yeah. one. Like, I, I'm surprised I didn't think of that when I was talking about the challenges, but uh, but that is something that you know I do come across day in day out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you know, say there's uh, an armored folk who's writing on you know something related to the armored core, yeah. and when I send it to a reviewer, so what I generally try to do is when I have a manuscript, I try to send one to a person of a different trade and then one belonging to the same trade. So we have different opinions on, you know, the feedback. Yeah. And it's always interesting to see how a lot of, you know, infantry folks go like, that's such a typical, you know, jargon from the armored mm. core. I do not think I understand that. So how would the readers understand that? Yeah. And that is something that I've realized over time that, you know, that does remain a challenge because we're so insular in, in some of our thinking on the issues specifically yep. the ones that impact us directly. So we're, we're always thinking that, oh, this is like common baseline knowledge for everyone. But when you start writing and when you start putting your writing out in the world, you start realizing that not everyone may kind of, you know, resonate with the jargons that you use or, or the style of writing that you're used to. So yes, customizing it to a larger audience with the intention that not everyone understands everything that you're saying. So as you said, put it in simpler terms and simpler words. At the end of the day, it's not about showing off your skill set or, you know, the intellectual vocabulary. It's about getting your message across, you know, to the person reading. So the simpler you can go with explaining the concepts, I think the, the better and more effective writing you're dealing with. Yeah, I completely agree. There's a, <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that I think get in the way of good writing. There's also part of the problem I think too, and I've seen this lately with this whole Harding project thing. Um, there's mm -hmm. some like um, pedantic talking down to people that I think is intended. <laughs> it's intended to make them want to write or to try and write better. And so mm -hmm. I see a lot of this on on LinkedIn and Twitter, where you know people associated with this project are are. are Coming, to me, it comes across as uh, as being pedantic and talking down. And I've published, you know, 70-something papers, and I still feel like the way that they're – if I was new to writing or if I was trying to break into writing, I would be mm -hmm. um, somewhat – I don't know if intimidated is the right word, but I would see that as – I would see that hostily uh, <laughs> um, because <laughs> – uh, because of the way that it comes across. And so I think that that's important. It's also important to understand that like when we coach people, whoever the we is in this situation, um, mm -hmm. the, the mentors uh, and the editors and whatnot, when we coach people um, about their writing, and I guess, hell, this is also applicable for a lot of the journal stuff that I've seen um, mm -hmm. and feedback that I've received in the past several months. Like when you give feedback as an editor or as, you know, not the, the editor, capital T, <laughs> capital E, <laughs> But just somebody doing editing work for other people, uh, whether that's actual peer review work or if it's just um, general editing, I think it's important to be specific, um, right? You know, so like a lot of the feedback, I've gotten two journal article um, 
uh, two journal articles back uh, over the past uh, six months, and it's like, uh, you know, the, the the peer reviewer number two just says, this isn't good, you know? Oh. And you're like, dude, I need you to elaborate on what's good. You haven't critiqued my hypotheses or my methods or any of that. You just don't, it, it appears that you don't like what I've said, and that's it. You know, and so I think that that's an important thing to remember, too, when we're giving feedback. We're trying to help educate people about how mm-hmm. to write. Part of that is you as the person, as the mentor, as the editor, as the person providing guidance, whatever whatever term best defines that relationship to the writer or the potential writer is you have to be, A, like not a jerk um, because that's going to turn a lot of people off, and B, not condescending, but then also C, you need to be detailed and how you provide feedback so uh-huh. that it's tangible and useful for the person that's receiving it. Cause those big vague hand waves, like when I was in the career course <laughs> as a <laughs> captain, we had, we were doing the battalion phase of the course and we had this guy who was, and I'm using air quotes here, really good as our instructor. And uh-huh. during the b- battalion phase of the course, you go through MDMP, the military decision making process. And you do briefs at the end of each one of these, you know, major steps and this is how the course used to be. I don't know. It's, you know, it's been over a decade since I went to that. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when we got through, we did our, like, mission analysis brief. At the end of it, and again, this really good dude uh, in terms of, like, you know, being a rock star in the, uh, in, in the, in the infantry branch at that point in time, his, his feedback was, I don't have anything detailed to tell you, but do better next time. You know, and I feel like a lot of times when we, a lot of writing, um, a lot of stuff that I see Mm -hmm. uh, that that gets sent back to people uh, in terms of edits and stuff is something similar to that. And I just think it's important to understand that, like, you as the person providing feedback need to be as detailed as possible, too, to really help that person. Because part of that, to me, is you're trying to help educate that person to be Mm -hmm. a better writer, you know. And so... Anyway, uh, enough of that. That's a good point. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I, I don't know if you know, but there's actually this thing called the Reviewer 2 phenomena. It's mm. like the infamous academic folk devil. And for some reason, it's always the reviewers, you know, the second reviewer. Yeah. And every author, and trust me, even editors, genuinely dread dealing with them because uh, they really know how to ruin someone's day, yeah. literally sometimes for no valid reason. And sometimes it really shocks me that, you know, 
some people who genuinely, you know, experts in their domain can be insensitive under the cloak of anonymity. And I I always tell, you know, the authors, whenever I know that I'm sending a review across, which may not be the most polite, that sometimes, you know, I, I feel that, oh, should I mellow it down? But then that would be, you know, Again, it's counterproductive at times because, but also you do not want the author to feel discouraged to, you know, mm-hmm. revise their piece. So I think I always like send my own, you know, short note saying that it's okay. You don't need to agree with everything that they say. Yeah. And it's okay to disregard some of the extreme comments because like I have been a victim of that too. Mm. And trust me, like I have like lost my sleep over some of those comments. (laughs) And I keep telling people, don't do that because trust me, not everyone is an expert on all things all the time. Yeah. Well, then again, to your point on discouragement, I think it, you know, like we should be encouraging, not discouraging. And exactly. the, goal, the goal isn't to, my, my starting position is always, yes, I'm going to recommend, because I do a lot of peer review for a lot of several, uh, several journals as well. And my starting position is always, you have to prove me, prove to me why I shouldn't say yes to this and not my starting position is no. Cause I feel like mm. a lot of, a lot of people are at the starting position of no, and you have to prove to me why, uh, your your article should be accepted for publication. The uh, the the recent thing I've gotten into. I know we're totally off 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 the trail uh, right now, but <laughs> I'm enjoying this conversation, so we're going to continue with it. But the um, the the reviews when they come in like that for me, because I've gotten again a couple like that recently, and I hope that the people that are associated with it listen to this podcast, but. I've sent, Mm -hmm. uh, I've sent back the feedback with, with, uh, my, you know, my, my, um, comments to the reviewers and my updates to the drafts, like, Hey, reviewer, you need to do a better job of being a reviewer because, you know, this is the most vacuous comment in the world that, that actually says nothing other than I'm lazy and I haven't done my job as reviewer number two or reviewer Mm -hmm. number one for that matter. And so with the past couple, I've, uh, sent back that note with them because really it, it was uh two journal articles in the past six months that i've had in that situation uh-huh. and uh you know it's just um i i and again if those journal articles end up because i'm still waiting on the the final yay or nay on those two if they don't get picked up that's fine because reviewer number two uh generally awful human beings uh, we'll move on from there <laughs> <laughs> For sure. No, trust me. I think the biggest challenge, I think, for an editor anyways, finding reviewers, because at the end of the day, it's a thankless job because you don't get paid to review someone's work. But it's, it's worse when you kind of have someone who's doing that work for you. But at the end of the day, they're also being so rude and insensitive. Yep. I never go back to such reviewers because I do not want any of the catch potential contributors to feel like, oh, my God, this particular article, you know, that I sent to catch ruined mm-hmm. my day or week. So yep. I always it's it's like my mantra, right? I do not go back to such reviewers ever. Yeah, no, that's good. I think that's uh, that's valuable. There's a. Uh... I think a, a level of respect that should be um, shared between you mm-hmm. know, submitter and reviewer and the reviewer always needs to, to keep that in mind. Like you're doing somebody a favor. Yes. But at the same time, like you should, 
you should be looking to help coach somebody and not destroy somebody's feelings. Uh, you know? but, That's true. All right. So anything else you want to mention on the journal? Cause we're running short on time here and I want to, it's new year's Eve for those who don't know what day it is for us. And uh, mm-hmm. I want uh Didi, I want you to be able to get back to your party uh, that you got going on. Oh, I trust me. I just have another cat management <laughs> review. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, is there anything else on the journal you'd like to share? Oh, for sure. So, you know, again, I'll let this be a shameless plug. Yep. To begin with, I would really urge everyone to go Google Canadian Army Journal. The first link that you'll get would be the journal's website. Go subscribe to, you know, the electronic uh, uh, journal. Every time there's any publication that gets uploaded on the website would come directly in your inbox. And I'll promise not to spam any of you folks. Cool. So, yeah, I'll just urge everyone to subscribe to the electronic mailing list. And also, you know, keep an eye out on the other school stuff that we're doing at the Army Journal. We're dealing with different formats there. We already have tactical decision games, which offers uh, scenarios for people who may be interested in, you know, solving tactical quiz and puzzles and scenarios and offer solutions. And if the readers feel that they have some good offer, you know, solution to offer, feel free to write to us. We would review those solutions and even potentially publish them on the website. Mm. And we're also working on a short form, you know, uh, article format for the Canadian Army Journal website, because I understand not everyone has the time and bandwidth to write 5,000, 6,000 word uh, articles. So we've, we're working to start a new initiative which allows people to write 1,000 word articles. I would just urge everyone to go subscribe to the mailing list, subscribe to the journal. It's open source, it's bilingual, it's out there for anyone interested in land warfare, defense, security. And please always feel free to read, write, offer feedback, and uh, that's all I have. <laughs> all right. The uh, I think the important thing to note, though, is do not use AI to write your journal article submissions. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I think that, like AI, and I know I'm taking this long, I think yeah. AI is such a boon and a bane that mm. if it's used in an ethical manner, it just helps, you know, enhance knowledge. But when used unethically, it just, you know, ruins the very spirit of academic and scholarly publishing, which is why I always feel every time you can use AI ethically, put it out there for everyone to know, be transparent about it. So everyone knows what they're dealing with. So these features that we're working on, of course, they would be out for everyone. We're just trying to use tech in a way which is helpful to humanity and mm-hmm. does not ruin the very spirit of academic publishing. Yeah, no, I completely agree. All right. Um, so uh, let's see. Last thing I have for you. What is the worst hot take that you hear floating around? whatever, the internet, Twitter, any, any, anything um, as it relates to defense and security studies today? So because I am editing two editions on urban warfare, I'll uh-huh. just talk about some of the hot bad takes on that one. Yeah. And I think one of them is that urban warfare is mainly for the infantry, mm. which I think is like one of the worst ways to put it. People, people are saying that? 
Yes, even oh, today. Like, it's ironic, right? But yeah. yeah, a lot of people feel it's just like an infantry's, uh, you know, an infantry's job. Yeah. Not many realize you need the armor, you need engineers, you need air support. Like, it's combined arms warfare. Yeah. So it's it's surprising. Like, even in some of the manuscripts that I received, you know, this was one of the points uh, of, of revisions that we did propose, saying that, you know, some of the things do come across as this is mainly infantry, or when in reality it's not. Yeah. So I would say this is like because it's a surprise for me that people still think this way so i would call this the first and the main bad take on urban warfare per se cool so the other one would be uh this myth and i think i too believed in this for a long time Mm. is that urban defenders actually have an advantage but i realized with you know by reading a lot more that it's not always the case we, we tend to believe that defending an urban terrain is, is always easiest. And because the defenders have the advantage, it's always difficult for the other party. But I always feel that that may not always be the case because every urban warfare scenario is so different, is so unique. You can take some lessons from here and there, but every it has its own idiosyncrasies because of which this particular statement may not be true everywhere. Yeah, you know it's fascinating uh, that you, I had to pull up my my database or my data set that I'm working on. So I'm putting together a, a I don't know a, a journal article uh, that has a data set that I'm building on 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 sieges and uh, sieges and, and modern conflict, right? So post Cold War sieges, mm-hmm. and I published uh, something in War on the Rocks a few weeks ago, maybe even uh, like the end of October, beginning uh, I don't know, it was in November, I think. Um, and it, it had some of the highlights from that. And so I bring this up to, to, to build on your point there. So I always thought that like, uh, I thought there was a clear set of information on sieges in terms of like who won and who lost and everything. And it's actually, um, it depends on the duration of the siege on who, who wins and who loses. And so the the shorter sieges, and I defined that as, you know, one day to a month, those were won by the aggressor something like um, 90% of the time. And then when you move down to one to six months, uh, it really starts to shift and it equals out to uh, um, almost 50%. Uh, and then when you go to the six to 12 month time period, the defender mm-hmm. actually wins uh, the siege more often than the aggressor. And I don't have the percentages in front of me. I just have the, the chart. Um, so I can't give you a specific numbers, but then when you go back down to 12 months, uh, it pushes back out to the aggressor. So like as a defender, if you can get into that six to 12 month time period, you actually mm-hmm. have a better chance of winning a siege than you do if uh, you're looking to, to to wrap it up quickly or to uh, extend it out beyond a year. And so like that, that, you know, there was a lot of, I think, myths, you know, I was chatting with friends and they're like, oh, the aggressor always wins. And I was like, you know, I, I think I thought that too before I really got into the data. And again, this is mm-hmm. uh, 60 sieges post-Cold War that have occurred that I've put mm-hmm. into this data set. And, and that's one of the things that came out. And that was a surprise to me, that six to 12-month window. And those are the four buckets that I made was that one, you know, one month or less, one to six months, six to 12, and then 12 plus. Uh, but that six to 12-month period, really, the, mm-hmm. the, def- the defender wins more often than not. And that, to me, was like a myth that I found interesting. And so, uh, 
I, I just that's I, insightful. Wow, that's yeah. that's really insightful for me. Yeah, and I found that really interesting. And so your comment on that, on those, on, you know, that myth there, um, got me thinking about that too. And I wish I had, if I knew, if I knew you were going to go there, I would have the actual data numbers pulled up. But uh, yeah, you know, but this is helpful. I'd actually be excited <laughs> to read more on this one. Yeah, well, I can send you the. Uh, it's also going in my book that I mentioned, so I can send you the chapter because a lot of that data is in there. So awesome. Uh, yeah. Um, so I guess as we're wrapping up here, I know you've published uh, two books and some articles. Uh, the articles being relatively recent. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to uh, to to talk about that you're working on outside of CAD that you think uh, people might be interested in? For sure, like I've already, like as you mentioned, I've already uh, written two books. One of them is Understanding Security Role Evolution of US, China, and India. And the other is India and the Indo-Pacific, mm-hmm. Understanding India's Security Orientation Towards Southeast Asia and East Asia. So these are the two books that I've published already. And what I'm currently working on is a potential book and I don't know, I still am preparing the book outline for it mm-hmm. on, you know, sustainment in the army. And I'm also working on a potential journal article on ways to mitigate uh, China's, uh, you know, gray zone tactics, mm-hmm. specifically in, in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. So these yeah. are two things that I'm working on currently. Hoping to publish them in 2024. Let's see how the new year goes. <laughs> you got you got two uh, two uh, urban warfare editions to get out too, though. So I don't know. Oh, you may for be, sure. Like I think tired. 2024. Oh <laughs> yes, but I think it would be so eventful. We'll actually yeah. have almost three editions out because one of the editions, which was supposed to get published, like end of this year got mm-hmm. pushed to 2024. So we mm-hmm. have three editions out and I'm really excited about them because there's so much that gets covered in those three editions that yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping for some great feedback on it because I loved working on all three of those. All right. Well, with that, thank you. Um, I'm going to put your uh, cadge obviously in the show notes so that anybody that isn't familiar with it can easily just go click on that and it'll pop right up for them. And then I'll, I'll also link your books and your uh, your those uh, articles that you've recently had come out. So uh, with that, thank you so much. yeah, Didi, thank you very much for your time, and uh, I hope you have a happy new year. And uh, uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Amos. Like it's just such me such a delight being here. Love the conversation. Happy New Year to you as well, and uh, wishing all the listeners a very happy twenty twenty four. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 